1: Ladies and gentlemen, June third, two thousand and twenty-two. I am Matt Belinsky, and this is your weekly dose of sanity. The prevailing narrative: so Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, the saga that has captivated America for weeks, if not months, now finally have a result. The jury is in, finding a resounding victory for Johnny Depp. The jury finding in his favor in his defamation claim against his ex-wife Amber Heard. She also had counterclaims, one of which she won, but a short shrift in offsetting the fifteen million dollar award that the jury awarded Johnny Depp, which is reduced a little bit to just over ten million dollars because there's a cap in the State of Virginia on punitive damages, but offsetting those two awards. Amber Heard is out about $8 million owing to her ex-husband. Potentially, she can appeal this result. But one way or another, this was a resounding victory for Johnny Depp. And I admit, even somewhat of a surprising one um, in my eyes, because defamation has such a high bar. uh, There's such a high bar to prove defamation, particularly if you're a public figure such as Johnny Depp. And even beyond that, if you're looking at all the evidence, and I've commented on this on this podcast previously, a few weeks ago, I had on Johnny's confidant and friend, Greg Ellis, um, who is front and center for quite a bit of the. Relationship that was the subject of this dispute, and it's pretty much impossible if anyone, regardless of whether or not you think Johnny Depp is any angel, or if he may have contributed to the volatility of this relationship, Amber, in the way that she portrayed herself, clearly it was a false portrayal. Okay, she was abusive, toxic, aggressive, uh, and and just exhibited any no shortage of erratic behavior that cannot be squared with how she tried to present herself as a sweet, innocent victim of domestic abuse, and uh, just along an, another in a long history of victims of high-powered men who were beyond reproach and that simply did not square with the facts here whatsoever however um Johnny you know the the trial did show in in, in Johnny's own admission that he was a substance abuser he ag- exhibited aggressive behavior as well and while and I, I think as with the jury found amber did not prove that he uh that he physically attacked her and was thus an abuser I mean it, it was you could have implied that from some of the evidence that was set forth Forth. Nevertheless, the jury found heavily in his favor. And so, of course, now we're looking for the larger implications. And is this the retrospective? Is this the proxy battle um, for the remembrance of Me Too or how Me Too is going to, I guess, while we're no longer in the heyday of Me Too, um, the principles behind it that we have to be more strict with and more exacting and more, more deferential to women in their claims of sexual assault and, and, and abuse from men um, that this is still an ongoing thing and how is Me Too going to be viewed or what's its impact going to be on our society going forward and yeah this is going to have an impact on all of it I mean this ju- this jury verdict is going to scare a lot of people and hopefully it's going to scare just people who are looking to make false or frivolous accusations and not those who truly have legitimate claims of uh, of domestic abuse or sexual violence um, but th- this is one that you cannot ignore and in case with such a high evidentiary bar for this type of award in this type of situation, yes, this one's going to be felt and there's going to be reverberations throughout society, both in media and interpersonal relationships. And so I want to talk about interpersonal relationships here for a second, um, because this is not the first volatile, angry, hostile chaotic interpersonal relationship marriage between you know movie stars right this thing's been going these things have been going on since the beginning of time so why did this one spiral out of control and reach this level with you know that why did this become the proxy battleground when it did and, it, and I think that is very telling about me too and me too's place and where it went off the rails um over the last few years because once again we everybody's focused on the drama uh, you know it, we, this can be viewed as kind of a tabloid battle right it was who's the bad guy who's the Good guy. But in a court of law, we've got to zero down on what specifically was the subject, what was the basis of the legal claims, and why did the jury find as it did. And this goes back specifically to this Washington Post op ed that Amber Heard, well, as it turns out, it was written by the ACLU, and Amber Heard decided to put her name on. So it serves us to ponder why was this written? So let's say she still had the facts on her side. In a lot of cases, historically, this would have been handled interpersonally, it would have been handled privately through divorce proceedings. But no, during the Me Too era, you could gain victimhood currency is this topic that I've mentioned on this podcast before victimhood inflation. We've inflated the amount of currency and the applause that you get in society from being a victim um, because celebs, the social causes of our recent era, were they whether they be gender or racial, uh, as in the case of Jussie Smollett, if you are actually a victim, a legitimate victim. You do get quite a few accolades and we can pretend that victimhood is completely new to this era, but it's not people have always been the subject. There's always been victims of domestic violence uh, of racism and things of that nature. And contrary to popular belief, some people have always come forward and made these claims and sometimes proven them. But recently, the currency you get from being a victim and proving your claims or even if you're not proving them, even if you simply win in the court of public opinion, um, the rewards to that have gone up. And that's what's being exhibited here right now, because Nobody forced Amber Heard to release that op ed. Nobody forced Amber Heard to kind of uh, in conjunction to work with the ACLU in order to kind of make herself one of the queens, one of the princesses of Me Too and portray herself as a leader of the victim movement. Right. Because that's what's happened here. Let's look at the history of the, uh, the ACLU's involvement with Amber Heard on this topic. Okay, so in 2017, after Amber Heard had already filed uh, divorce, had already filed for divorce against Johnny Depp, and seemed to be trying, you know, making public pronouncements against him and and in favor of you know her her portrayal that she was a victim of domestic abuse and was divorcing this over the hill substance abusing crazy wannabe rock star movie star. Right. That's that was her story. So she got in contact with the ACLU and she wanted to be in support of their victim relief fund and things of that nature. Um, and you know. started to portray herself in the media. And started to get vocal, started to get vocal in media and wanting to get, she wanted to be celebrated, okay? Uh, the whole idea that these, that Amber Heard speaking out in this case was somehow going to be a net positive for society in terms of empowering victims um, or, or, you know, helping overturn the patriarchy or breaking the societal cycle of rich, powerful men able to get away with domestic abuse. And we well, you know that's, those are all pretty flimsy objectives and claims here, okay? Amber Heard did this and became more vocal because... Because she wanted the accolade, she wanted the clout, the victimhood clout. She wanted to be one of the queens of me too. And looking at the ACLU's involvement here, perhaps with their urging, this organization that has essentially disregarded its previous principles about you know civil rights and the burden of proof and due process and free speech, and now just be kind of become kind of a liberal advocacy advocacy group. Uh, no, the ACLU, which had never had uh, a part, it had never participated in issues of domestic violence and sexual abuse, I and mean, all of a sudden they got involved. Because this was a liberal cause celeb. And they encouraged Amber to speak out. They wrote this op-ed for her and she put her name on it. Nobody, Nobody obligated her to do so. She could have handled this interpersonally but she decided not to. Okay, there's a Rolling Stone story kind of outlining some of this. By 2018, the ACLU became even more enmeshed with Heard, who had accused Depp of domestic violence. The group approached the actress to write an op-ed about gender-based violence and suggested that, quote, she can interweave her personal story saying how painful it is as a a domestic abuse survivor, an ACLU executive wrote in an email that was read in court. So why do this? Once again, was there a genuine belief that this op-ed was going to help anybody beyond Amber Heard? Or could you become, could you increase your celebrity could you get more clout in society from being a victim over recent years i think you know which way which way i'm leaning here you know suppose that question to yourself um amber heard did she regardless of the, the you know what happened in her relationship with johnny depp did she bring this upon herself by deciding to go and be vocal about something with all these skeletons in her closet right she hadn't even been accused of domestic violence um with a former you know same sex relationship that she had previously no you know files were charged but i clearly her her rooftop was not clean right um her behavior in her relationship with don johnny De- So she knew that she had Skeletons in her closet She knew that she had Liabilities hanging there That all this evidence Could potentially come out But the odds were so stacked In the favor of the accuser From let's call it 2016-17 Through you know Let's call it even the last year The odds were so stacked In favor of the accuser And you could get So much more clout From portraying yourself As a victim That the risk-reward The cost-benefit for Amber Seemed to work out in her favor For her to go and release this op-ed She could have saved herself quite a bit of trouble and now about eight million dollars her reputation and her entire net worth by simply handling this privately that you know this could have been hashed out in the family court system instead of trying to become one of the Me Too darlings uh, and kind of a, a champion of quote-unquote survivors, she could have handled this on a private level and she should have, could have saved herself a lot of trouble. So going back to the case specifically and why she lost, the evidence showed her contradicting herself so often that it just cast uh, it cast suspicion on the op-ed entirely. So when you can kind of see from the way the op-ed was written that they even, Amber and the ACLU, even kind of questioned their approach in the first place because it never refers to to Johnny Depp specifically. And they're kind of trying to end around. They want plausible deniability that they weren't specifically. Just talking about Johnny Depp, and obviously the attempt to do so—I mean—that backfired because any neutral observer can read this and tell that she, that's who she was referring to. And anyone who is going to read that is going to then—the implication is this: well, the direct assertion is that Johnny Depp is a is a domestic abuser. So uh, Amber even said it; even she tried to weave her way out of this and saying, uh, uh, on the stand, she said, "This op-ed's not about Johnny. The only one who thought it was it was about Johnny is Johnny." I mean, that's ridiculous. If you try to put forth that argument. A jury is going to look at that any rational jury is going to look at that and know you're full of shit and Amber even kind of walked into a contra a contradiction on the stand and then later uh, Acknowledging that she wrote it with Johnny in mind and that people were supposed to know that it was him, right? so Man, I think this is it, it, making the private public. This is even something I discussed previously in the terms of you know people's private dating lives becoming public uh, within the the context of uh, Me Too, Caleb. That was an interesting one. But th- this is this is something that keeps on happening. And so situations that were once handled privately, that at least people tried to handle private, right? Because obviously the media and the tabloids they they expand and they you know explode anything that's between celebrities that is glamorous and controversial. You can't really blame the media for doing this, right? But in prior eras, people in Johnny's and Amber's situation, they would have tried to keep it private, while the media there would have been a tug of war with the media trying to make it a more public incident, right? But in this case, no. Amber Heard, with the ur- with the urging and the support of the ACLU, which is a civil liberties organization, it's not a battered women's organization, they went and made this public and tried to essentially uh, uh, create or engineer Amber Heard as a, as a darling of the Me Too movement, and it completely and utterly backfired, right? Um, and yes, this Like I said, this does have, in thinking of what impact this is going to have on society overall, it's definitely going to chill some false claims. It also may chill some more legitimate claims. So we see where these supposedly good intentions of support victims, believe victims, and don't let powerful men get away with their bullshit, right? And these otherwise virtuous or admirable objectives completely backfire when you take it too far. And that's what we keep on doing recently. When we create the conditions for some uh, civil rights organization that has no business getting involved in this incident and, you know, a, a somewhat suspicious and a person involved in a situation that maybe has a, a few too liabilities on or has too many skeletons in the closet really should be keeping things quiet. No, instead, they want to get public about something that should be kept private and look what it leads to. It makes everything messy. So right now, to a certain extent we're still in the tabloid phase everybody team johnny is celebrating everybody team amber uh is obviously lamenting and a lot of people are writing op-eds suggesting that this is that this means that nothing has changed that me too changed nothing and this is just another instance of a powerful man getting away with abuse and it's going to have a chilling effect on all women even those who are victims of domestic abuse and not in the way that amber heard was where it kind of takes two to tango um Unfortunately, this needed to happen. There needed to be a seminal case. Cl- there needed to be a seminal case, a seminal situation where it was clear that we have to take a more skeptical uh, eye and be you know, scrutinize more heavily those claims because that's what an adult society does. The accused has the presumption of innocence, okay? The burden of proof is on the accuser. In all circumstances, it doesn't mean that we just dismiss all claims and we don't believe any women. It means that we have to take each situation, look at the totality of the, first of all, reserve judgment once a claim is made. Gathered the evidence and look at the totality of the evidence in making a judgment and stop trying to do what the ACLU tried to do, what Amber Heard and the ACL attempted to do and essentially win the battle through the court of public opinion based on accusation alone. It backfired spectacularly and to a certain extent has ruined Amber Heard's life. Like she's going to she's bankrupt like no she doesn't have 8 million dollars and she's going to she's going to have to declare personal bankruptcy i'm sure johnny depp will get a couple bucks out of it but nothing close to the entire award and um this has not turned out in her favor and i can't i cannot sympathize with her even to the extent that i could see that yeah johnny depp was no angel either and he was certainly not he was not sober he was not a pleasant guy to deal with or to be married to um but in trying to take this too far in pretending that this was just a one that the villain was just one-sided here um, Um, This woman has ruined her life it's because society was handed out too many victim awards so as I said perhaps this will help some of the bloodletting, right? And that it can help us return to a healthier equilibrium and can hopefully pour some cold water on the flame of the battle of the sexes that's been going on for a few years now. And hopefully we can get back to kind of analyzing things more soberly. And beyond that, Jesus Christ, the ACLU is just toxic. They need to be avoided like the plague. I do not know. And it goes back to the institutional poisoning and corrosion that I mentioned quite often on this podcast that, you know, formerly sense-making and trustworthy admirable institutions like the aclu just hold no value for society it's the big travesty is that the aclu is going to get off scot-free other than maybe some uh, other than maybe some reputational hits here i mean they're the ones who wrote the op-ed i know amber heard put her name on it but they put her in the line of fire i I can't imagine she does this without their encouragement and they led her right into an eight million dollar anvil dropped on her head by johnny depp and it's going to take her a while for her life to recover Also, this episode, I'm going to be speaking with a friend of mine named Justin Rosvani. He's had successful ventures in the tech space with successful social media companies. He's now translating that for a crypto project called Zion, and it's really informed by a lot of principles that I hold near and dear in terms of free speech and freedom and decentralization. So, um, we're going to get into the project in my discussion with Justin, but also the the principles that inform it, and I think you'll find it really interesting. But before we get to Justin, oh man, our president Joe Biden, things are bleak. They are not looking good for his presidency so far. His Poll numbers are atrocious. Latest poll numbers, disapproval ratings at 55%, 34% approve, state by state. And this is really fascinating and kind of troubling if you're Joe Biden. I mean, he's above 50% in pretty much zero states, including deep blue states that voted for him heavily, like California. He's at 42% approval rating in the state of California, which is insane. We're now, what, about 16 months into, well, a little bit more than that. We're about 17 months into his presidency. It cannot be described as anything other than flounder. Right now. And there was a piece that came out this week with NBC News inside a Biden White House drift amid a rolling series of calamities and sinking approval ratings. The president's feeling lately is that he just can't catch a break and that angst is rippling through his party. Okay, so the vibes around Joe Biden, not good. His presidency can be considered nothing other than a failure right now. And even going back, everything, of course, these days needs to be compared to Trump, viewed through the prism of Trump. And yes, even the story about Joe Biden's dismay at his approval ratings through the prism of Trump because part of the article is about how he feels that he's now lower than Trump and he's really twisted about it. And the fact that Americans seem to disapprove of him at a level that they've disapproved of Donald Trump is really irking Joe Biden. Okay, so is this an illusion? Is this another one of those temporary uh, temporary conditions that Americans really don't know how well that they have it? These are just a reaction to high gas prices, things of that nature. And it's all uh, Joe Biden's approval ratings will all float back up to a regress to some sort of mean and you know the kind of lovable level- likable, calm, poised. Uh, Uncle Joe that we saw during the campaign in 2020, who was just kind of sitting there with a smile on his face, promising to restore America's dignity and the soul and kind of turn down the heat on the culture that had really just everyone was at each other's face and that Trump kept on pouring gasoline on the fire. Uh, are we going to return to that Joe Biden? And I got to be honest, I don't, I think this, this is the Biden presidency, okay? This is not some illusion. People aren't uh, imagining that things are not going well. And it's really a question of Joe Biden not in not reading the tea leaves and understanding that, and this is a certain same thing I could have I could have said about Donald Trump, maybe people just aren't into your bullshit. Donald Trump kept on blaming the media. A lot of it was the truth, um, but a lot of it was his own behavior that maybe people don't like your shtick. Maybe not just people who had given, not just super resistancy people who are going to be against Donald Trump no matter what. Maybe they didn't like how he seemed so callous in regards to, to uh, to COVID that a guy that Donald Trump tweeting out you know during the early days of COVID about his ratings seemed insensitive and unhinged and if a person acts like that the populace cannot be blamed for not wanting them to be the leader of the free world similarly uh, Donald Trump I mean his performance in the first uh, the first debate I mean this guy looked unhinged you can't go and then blame everybody everyone's like how did Joe Biden get eighty one million votes well I I find it hard to, you know you go watch Donald Trump's performance during that first. Debate, he came off like a complete lunatic. No, you can go find eighty-one million people who want to vote against that. So similar, similarly to that, Joe Biden and his performance in the office, as opposed to when he all he had to do was simply not be as crazy as Trump. So let's look at his performance. The let's be the major issue was COVID, right? That's what fell Donald Trump's presidency and his reaction. If you even go, uh, Brad Parscale, Trump's campaign manager for most of his campaign, even admitted it on a clubhouse. He said, "Yes, Donald Trump lost because people." Dissatisfied with his reaction, both tactically and kind of personality wise, to COVID. He seemed uh, unconcerned, insensitive, and to the extent that he could have made the case that COVID was uncontrollable and not his fault, or that he was being uh, uh, unfairly blamed for not being able to get the virus under control, to the extent that he could have made that argument, he didn't make it clear enough. He didn't make it articulately enough, and that's what he was punished. And he was punished for that at the ballot box. Okay, so Joe Biden was very clear. He says, hey, The covid such a problem in the U.S. because we have Donald Trump. When you elect me, I'm going to get this thing under control. So what happened? It was not under control. The first few months of Joe Biden's presidency were some of the worst months that we had for covid results, period. Well, hey, you sleep in the bed that you made, Joe. You said you were going to get this thing under control and you didn't. Okay, you're going to have to take the blame. You got elected off those claims. So you live by you live by the promise. You die by the promise. So instead of taking responsibility and acknowledging, hey, this thing, it's an airborne respiratory virus and it's simply tougher to contain than we like to represent, particularly in a very active social, you know, high octane society like the United States that has 50 different states and a lot of fragmentation as to policy. We exist. Exaggerated the extent that we were that uh, that this was policy based, that maybe this was something that was out of control of even the most competent president. But he didn't do that. So instead, he downshifts to becoming very divisive. And around the vaccine, he became just as divisive as Donald Trump. This is a, a post. I couldn't believe my freaking eyes. This was May of last year. Uh, Joe Biden tweets out. The rule is now simple. Get vaccinated or wear a mask until you do. The choice is yours. I mean, excuse me. What the heck? Ha- You're the president. Don't speak to people like that. The vaccine is a very personal choice. And as we've now well documented, there's a hell of a lot of evidence to suggest that the cost benefit analysis for the vast majority of people out there who are not in high risk categories did not work out. Either one did not work out in favor of them getting the vaccine or two certainly did not work out in favor of there being such a strong argument that it was such a no-brainer choice and that you get to lambast and lecture people like that. But Joe Biden felt compelled to, one, lecture people about the vaccine and to pass the most sweeping vaccine mandate in the history of the United States, which is what he did in September while uh, uh, while his presidency was reeling from the Afghanistan debacle. And he expects, I guess he read polling numbers about you know Americans' views on vaccination. That most hey, who's the vast majority of people out there in September, or June, August, June, July, August, September, two thousand twenty-one? If asked about the vaccine, we're going to be we're going to praise it. We're going to embrace the vaccine. So Joe Biden took a look at that and said, "Okay, I'm going to deflect blame for the COVID results under on my watch, and I'm going to blame the, the unvaccinated." He did it again before the winter and saying that it's going to be a winter of death and destruction for the unvaccinated and like he. He thinks that these are not things that are going to turn people off, that if, if they do turn people off, they'll only be MAGA types that just like Donald Trump engaged in the fallacy that the only people who could validly dislike or or not embrace his behavior were resistance types. Joe Biden's making the same mistake and thinking this divisive, arrogant and poorly informed behavior in these policies will only turn off those who are his enemies anyways. And that's not the case. Maybe the average person, the middle of the road voter takes a look at you lecturing People about the vaccine, which people, you know, a lot of people out there could understand some skepticism or some hesitation, and people looking at this type of communication saying, "I'm not on board." Then we go to the Afghanistan pullout. We don't have to recount that, but it was an absolute disaster. It was embarrassing for our nation. Not to mention how the uh, the armed forces have conducted themselves, and then a lot of people, a lot of the social justice, when looking at the military and seeing the military embrace these equity campaigns and diversity campaigns, and the Marines... Uh, tweeting out about Pride Month or saying, wait a second, you know something, we might be in favor, Uh, we're all for tolerance but we don't think, if if we're concerned about the performance of our military which we are concerned about after the Afghanistan debacle, that maybe this is not what we want them to focus on. That these kind of pet social democratic causes uh, might be fine in certain circumstances but we don't want an administration that is going to direct the military to embrace them like this. Joe Biden might consider the possibility that these things are a turnoff, right? he's sitting there scratching his head, apparently, over how his approval ratings are at the same level of Donald Trump. Well, maybe look into this stuff. Maybe voters are not on board with this ethnic narcissism and dividing everything by race. Maybe they don't love the fact that we now have a vice president who's clearly unqualified in every which way, shape or form, is incoherent every time she speaks and was chosen specifically because of her race and gender. Kamala Harris is a disaster. She was a disaster from the beginning. She was a disaster when she tried to run for president. She didn't even make it to the first primary. Her short lived campaign for president was an embarrassment. And Joe Biden went and put her in the number two seat just because of her, just in order to placate the Democratic base based on race and gender. He goes and then repeats that. He chose someone I think is, you know, uh, far more qualified as a Supreme Court justice than Kamala is as a vice president. But once again, vocalized and was very explicit that he was making his decision limited by race and gender to only a black fem- uh, a female of color possibly this turns people off does the Biden administration Ever consider that that other than this kind of activist and, and managerial class that embraces all of this wokery and these social justice causes, that your average voter out there does not like this stuff, perhaps it needs to occur to the Joe Biden that this is the case. But I think everything got so distorted by Trump that the the Democrats and the Biden administration in particular assumed assumed that they were that what they were putting out there was far more popular. And no, it wasn't popular. It was just popular in comparison to what Donald Trump was putting out there. But this never registers with them. Beyond that, Joe Biden wants to take no he wants to take no responsibility for inflation whatsoever, despite the fact that a lot of people predicted this. Joe Biden went went ahead and essentially passed a handout bill of $1.8 trillion as a COVID relief package in 2021 when the economy had already recalibrated had already recalibrated around the pandemic, right? You could look in, you know, June, May, June, 2020, once we essentially shut down the economy and said, hey, the, we need an immense government assistance right now. We need the government to come in as kind of the buyer of last resort. We need them to fund businesses because the the, the economy has to recalibrate around these new conditions. By the time Joe Biden had already taken over, that had already happened. Consumer spending was still high. Um, people were, still, were going back to work other than the businesses that were specifically shut down. And then Joe Biden comes in with $1.8 trillion. If you go look at it of this $1.8 trillion and where the money was spent, what it went to, a lot of it sure as hell looks like handouts. A lot of it looks like unnecessary. A lot of it was racially directed. A lot of that money was earmarked based on racial preferences. Once again, Joe Biden doesn't consider the possibility that this shit turns people off. Larry Summers, Harvard economist, former Treasury secretary under Bill Clinton, Democrat, warned him ahead of time. He said, hey, the economy does not need this one point eight trillion dollars. This is going to lead to intense inflation. And that's some of Democratic strategists themselves warned Joe Biden about inflation for this unnecessary spending bill. Then they pass the bill, inject this money into the economy. The inflation comes around and he doesn't he still does not want to take credit for it. They just completely want to pass the buck in every way shape or form. Wants to go blame Vladimir Putin for high oil prices. But okay, Joe, you knew the situation with Vladimir Putin and Russia's and the extent to which the Western world relied on Russia for oil, yet you were unable to prevent this conflict with the Ukraine and you certainly don't seem to be doing anything to bring along a ceasefire and perhaps get, you know, international uh, oil production back in order and reintegrate Russia into the the world economy. You kept on telling us that it's a moral imperative to support the Ukraine, uh, to oppose Vladimir Putin at every turn, and it was worth the high gas prices. So you can't simultaneously tell American citizens that it's their moral obligation to accept higher gas prices and then deflect all blame when those higher gas prices materialize, because you've created conditions you don't want to aim, you don't want to do anything to bring about peace in this conflict, because you believe we're on the side of the morally righteous. Another issue that was mentioned in the NBC News piece is that Biden thinks that his verbal mishaps are being indulged, that his staff in apologizing or trying to retract some of his statements that seem to go off kilter is feeding right into his opponents. It's feeding right into the Republicans' claims that he is senile. That that he doesn't have a grip on the White House. Things like the misstep about, you know, um, saying that Vladimir Putin cannot be allowed to remain in power. A lot of his aides, a lot of his advisors, then walk back that statement. Well, well Joe, if you don't want people to walk back the st- a crazy statement, then don't make a crazy statement. Okay, if you're concerned, if you're trying to portray. If you're trying to project that America is not really looking for regime change with Vladimir Putin because we don't want to instigate him in that manner and that we just want to support the Ukraine, if you make a comment like we cannot allow Vladimir Putin to remain in power, I mean, that's going to stir the pot. That is going to worsen the situation, which is going to worsen the situation around oil. And also, I mean, you're you're radically altering American, America's stated foreign policy. Yet Joe Biden seems to have a problem with that tension between his statements that seem to his statements that seem to rile up or concern his staff and the administration as NBC News puts it beyond policy Biden is unhappy about a pattern that has developed inside the west wing he makes, as he claims, a clear and succinct statement only to have aides rush to explain that he actually meant something else. The so-called cleanup campaign, he has told advisors, undermines him and smothers the authenticity that fueled, fueled his rise. Well, you know, maybe it wasn't authenticity that fueled your rise, Joe. Maybe it was that you were actually being a good guy, right? You were being poised and calm and not divisive like, like Trump was. And once you became president, you became the qu- the po- more polite version of Donald Trump. That being this divisive, that trying to pass the buck around everything, that catering to only Democrat-based pet causes has not endeared you to people. It has not been the person that people thought they were voting for in November 2020. Once again, maybe you could consider this. So can Joe Biden salvage this presidency? Is this just a matter of high gas prices and taming inflation? Um, Biden released, I mean, this is also not a good sign. He released an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, his plan for fighting inflation, um as he says, I won't meddle with the Fed, but I will tackle high prices while guiding the economy's transition to stable and steady growth. I read the op-ed. You can go read it for yourself in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it, it seems like more gibberish. It seems like more blaming the Republicans, blaming supply chain issues, blaming Russia for high prices, taking no responsibility about the $1.8 trillion he injected into the economy, nor any real tangible plan to tackle inflation. But let's say that it is, to a certain extent, a supply chain issue overheating the economy from that. At 1.8 and things are going to slow down and inflation is going to get tamed over the next six to nine months. Can that salvage the Biden presidency? I think he still has an, an immense blind spot. His approach is one that caters more to the Democratic base when he thinks he's still being that centrist. And he has him and his administration have this immense blind spot as to this. The only place where he seems to have recognized that blind spot was in speaking out very aggressively against defund the police. He seemed to have finally tracked back to the center, seemed like, okay, this 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 is just what, you know, this is a crazy thing that the Democratic activist class and the media have normalized, but it's not normalized. The average voter does not want that and has gone on record zealously against defund the police. Okay, great. On every other issue that I've seen, he's catering to the Dem base. He's catering to the activists and seems to just not notice it. Maybe people, maybe Americans don't like racial narcissism. Maybe they don't think that these social justice causes, they think like, okay, by all means, they can be a priority, but they're not the entire priority. Perhaps this is the case and this is something to consider. So maybe the economy stabilizes a little bit, although there seem to be a lot of choppy waters on the horizon. So yeah, I, I think it's fantasy land. The idea that this is just a matter of gas prices and temporary inflation, which they claim to be transitory, which clearly ended up not being transitory, that is not the extent of the problems for, for Joe Biden's administration. I think it's going to be next to, next to impossible to salvage because they still have this massive blind spot that kind of this woke professional managerial class approach towards governance and towards culture is popular. It works. It's not popular. It does not work. It just worked as compared to Donald Trump. And Until they get rid of that blind spot and come back to reality, which I don't think they're going to do, Joe Biden's going to keep on scratching his head and licking his ice cream and wondering why his approval ratings continue to hover in Donald Trump territory. And another issue that I think the Biden administration had a major blind spot on the issue of masks. God, I thought I was done talking about them, but they have reared their ugly head once again this week. We've got some rising case counts and hospitalization counts around COVID. And it looks like Alameda County up in Northern California has become the first major county to reimpose an indoor mask mandate. Los Angeles County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer, otherwise known as the Chalk Woman, as I have referred to her as. uh, She also mentions that if hospitalizations keep on rising in Los Angeles. Angeles. Indoor mask mandate is coming back to L.A. I cannot even begin to fathom what the reaction to that is going to be. Okay, but the Biden administration's approach to masks Oh, my God, of course, masks work. How could you ever question that masks work? Only completely callous, knuckle dragging idiots would oppose masks. And why don't you want to wear your mask? If you don't, you are trying to kill grandma. Screw you. That was essentially the Biden administration's approach towards masks. They've continued to push them at every turn. And I think we saw once again, they don't know how to check public sentiment. It. They look at polls that uh, they seem seem to reference polls that say a lot of people were in favor of mask mandates on planes. And then once they released the mask mandates on planes, one, do you see the reaction? People explode in joy and cheer. And two, nothing happened. There was no increase. There was no impact on the state of covid or the trajectory of the virus whatsoever, which once again makes the Biden administration look stupid because their claims were we can't relax the max mask mandate on planes because it's going to uh, it's going to result in explosion of COVID. That didn't happen regardless. So slightly ri- a slight rise in case counts recently, starting to see some of the more liberal cities suggest a reimposition of mask mandates. Okay. So this is interesting as it also coincides with the release of an interesting piece in the New York Times, Why Masks Work But Mandates Haven't. Okay. This is by David Lenhart, who's been one of the more sober and actual, you know, more thoughtful comment commentators from the mainstream media on COVID. He seems to at least allow for the possibility of reality to enter the conversation. And this piece, it acknowledges, listen, masks can work in certain controlled specified settings. But the problem is the world doesn't work that way. This isn't a laboratory. This is not a it, life is not a controlled setting. So when you impose mask mandates, when people have to operate normally and over the course of people's lives on a day-to-day basis over the course of weeks and months they're not always going to be wearing their masks it's impossible for them to do so and simply by stretching out the sample size over a longer duration mask mandates end up having no real discernible impact whatsoever and this piece in the new york times for crying out loud finally acknowledges this As the piece goes, from the beginning of the pandemic, there has been a paradox involving masks. As Dr. Shira Daron, an epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center, puts it, it is simultaneously true that masks work and mask mandates do not work. And once again, because life is not a controlled laboratory setting. To start with the first half of the paradox, masks reduce the spread of the COVID virus by preventing virus particles from traveling from one person's nose or mouth into the air and infecting another person. Laboratory studies have repeatedly demonstrated the effect. Okay, fair enough. They go on. Given this, you would think that communities where mask wearing has been more common would have had many fewer COVID infections. But that hasn't been the case. Once again, reality conflicts with the the, with the controlled laboratory settings. Okay, it's like going into the restaurant. People have to take off their masks to eat and drink. Okay, people aren't going to be wearing their masks every second of the day inside their house with their family. So once again, while you could try where you could you could postulate masks during a confined period and confined circumstances will have an effect. You draw that out over weeks and months. You draw that out over a larger territory, and it's simply there's no discernible impact whatsoever. Thus, the mandates really don't do anything, and it's got to be everyone's personal decision, and the mandates are really just making life a little less pleasant on everybody else. The New York Times piece seems to acknowledge this. The main explanation seems to be that the exceptions often end up mattering more than the rule. The COVID virus is so contagious that it can spread during brief times when people take off their masks, even when a mandate is in place. For instance, airline passengers remove their masks to have a drink. Airlines, you've got a three and a half hour flight. The aggregate amount of particles that escape, one, just naturally because not all masks can kind of keep all particles, can shield all particles from escaping, but also you add that to the aggregate amount of time that people are eating or drinking or have to breathe or sneeze or God knows what, and it ends up having no impact whatsoever. If there was a half hour plane flight, nobody ate, nobody drank, and everyone was wearing an N95, okay, but that's just not how the world works. And these mask mandates, they still continue to follow the the disease of doing something. Case counts rise so people... People think we have to do something. We have to reimpose this mask mandate. They're not going to do a goddamn thing, as we've seen has been evidence over the course of the last few months when the entire world has been operating completely normally. Okay, the virus is going to virus. The trajectory of the virus will not be impacted by these mask mandates whatsoever. And finally, we wake up to reality. Finally, the mainstream media seems to acknowledge this. And all of a sudden, it's so ironic that it coincides with the suggestion that we may reimpose these in a couple territories. So these mask mandates, why would we even continue? Consider reimposing them. Everybody knows at this point, even the most insular and conformist publications are now admitting the mask mandates do not work. We've seen the evidence over the last few months with the mask mandates released. What could be informing These decisions Okay then we go Also a uh, weird For these reimpositions In that New York Times Piece to coincide With an interview With Dr. Deborah Burks. She was the coronavirus Coordinator for President Trump For a few months Into uh, 2020 Into 2021 She's been a little Quiet recently So she was interviewed This week And this is what she had To say about mask mandates Sometimes we use mandates Because we don't want To take the time To explain the science And the data And really have people Really understand Who should be using them And why Well that's a fascinating Admission Dr. Burks, that's of course, that's exactly what's been happening. These public health bureaucrats that nobody elected don't want to take the time to actually explain to us the truth about the virus and its risk and how it Weaves its way through society, so they just hand down universalist mandates because they figure, okay, the only way we, if we just get everyone to comply, if everybody falls in order, then we don't have to explain ourselves. Thank you for dropping the mask, quote unquote, Dr. Burks, and admitting this. I'll admit, I am fascinated to see what happens if Los Angeles tries to reimpose this. I, I don't see it working. I think there's going to be either one an uproar, or just two, just nobody's going to abide by it whatsoever. People have gotten to use the the pandemic is a distant memory to 97 percent of society at this point in four months I mean do we even remember what life was like in 2020 and 2021 I think people have kind of generally you know, collectively memory hold it I think trying to go and reimposing this small business owners are going to be willing to go back to that gyms are going to go and you start like your your trainer at Equinox is going to start hassling people about masks again this is just not going to happen I'm actually more. I have a morbid fascination with the fallout from this like it is going to be an absolute shit show if they try to do this again I don't think it's going to serve any anyone's interest and only serves my morbid curiosity it's not a good for society But hey, it's out of my hands at this point. It seems like there is no way still to pull in the reins or or give any oversight or have these public health directors be informed by the actual science or to abide by the will of the people. So I guess we'll see Uh, as some of these case counts rise and they're going to rise from essentially nothing to just above nothing over the next few months. um, We'll see if if covid regime part do or I guess it'd be part three or four at this point. Is it going to rear its ugly head again? And what will the societal reaction be? Well, regardless of whether they try to do it. I think at this point, we all know, even the New York Times acknowledging it, we do not live in a lab. We do not live in controlled settings, okay? Widespread societal mask mandates do not exist in a lab. They do not exist in controlled settings. Thus, they do not do a goddamn thing except allow ugly people to hide their face and inconvenience everybody else. So I think it's clear they don't do a damn thing except help ugly people hide their face and inconvenience the rest of us, okay? Once again, hopefully my last segment ever on masks, but it's looking less and less likely there. Um, either way, please read the New York Times piece. Once again, David Leonard, it is why masks work, but mandates haven't. OK, straight into the point. They seem to finally get it. We'll see if the public health defi- if the public health officials follow that advice. Regardless, this has been the prevailing narrative this week. We've got a conversation with Justin Rizvani coming up in just a minute. I think you're going to find it fascinating. Please stick around. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Matt Polinsky. This is The Prevailing Narrative. Okay, so crypto winter, the memes are flowing fast and hard right now. You know, uh, Fast food, McDonald's, managers welcoming back their Bitcoin, former Bitcoin millionaire employees uh, saying, hey, how about those lightning eyes? Everyone kind of dancing on the grave of the crypto world right now as uh, an enormous amount of wealth and value was wiped out over the past couple weeks uh, and months even. But then you take a look around and you're like, wait a second, if I'm looking at Bitcoin at, at about 28500 today, still up about 3x from its pre-pandemic from February 2020. It's like, hmm, that's actually not a bad return. Then you're looking around and you see so many people who kind of poo-poo the crypto world um, and and essentially dismiss the notion of of any utility. But then you look and you see that there's so many incredibly smart people with great track records who seem to be building things in the, the cryptocurrency world or in the Bitcoin world for usage with utility. One such individual is here with us today. His name is Justin Rosvani, the founder and CEO of Zion, which is a decentralized platform built for creators. Justin, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, my brother. So excited to do this. I appreciate you so much. Absolutely.
1: No doubt. Same here. So let's get right into it. What is Zion?
0: Zion is a censorship resistant social network that creators can actually own their content for the first time and, and not saying it in it's like kind of like uh, way in the ether, but, you know, the three things that are broken on the web is identity messaging and data storage, and ultimately the money and Zion's mm-hmm. trying to solve for each of those. So when you join Zion as a creator, you're establishing a DID, right? So this is a persistent identity over not just space, but also over time, and Just I think real quick, that's the thing DID that DID
1: stands for what necessarily.
0: Decentralized identifier, and that's okay. an open standard that we'll be using um, for creators. Then we're using a decentralized web node protocol that allows the messages to relay peer to peer. And mm-hmm. finally, the money, the the money, and how value is actually transferred in some ways. And I, I believe money is actually speech. We're using Bitcoin and specifically the Lightning Network to also move money over space and time. And I think this is something that's kind of a, a new idea because we've never had the ability to do that. We can move within space. We've always been able to do that, but you can never move identity and money over time because mm-hmm. it's highly centralized. For example, your Instagram account. I mean, one of the best Instagram accounts out there. I love the Ooh, content. I thank that you're- you. I love the content you're pumping because like it's it's what I'm thinking about all the time, but you're distributing it in a much better way. Appreciate you that you don't own anything on that, right? Like that's yeah. not your identity. You can never take it with you. If it if it gets deleted, it's gone forever. Mm. And you you don't have it persistent. You have it persistent in space, but not over time. Mm. And so now with a creator establishing a DID, doing messaging through a decentralized web node, and then allowing a monetary relationship through a peer-to-peer channel, which is lightning. Mm -hmm. Creators can build a whole new system and a whole new network. And that's what I'm really hopeful for, right? Mm -hmm. That's what Zion is designed to be. It's an an open protocol and a platform, but we're not building blockchains. We're not making up our own tokens. We're not Mm doing like all these other things to me are just noise. And, And why you're seeing the markets destroy it is that noise will be destroyed within a bear market where signal will thrive in a bear market. And that's why Zion's thriving.
1: So you actually tweeted out something uh, uh, the other day that kind of spoke to that point. The tree of Bitcoin must be refreshed from time to time with the liquidation of fools and shitcoins. coins. And, and you just mentioned something very interesting for a lot of both the crypto nov- novices, outsiders, but also some people who are fairly involved in the crypto world, but, you know, not experts. They only associate this world and to the extent there is any functionality and utility with tokens right because they see the value they see people getting rich off it and um, they kind of understand the notion that there's a blockchain underlying it but they don't really uh, it's not necessarily crystallized in their mind so you say hey we're not we're not building a blockchain here we we're not issuing a token there's no liquid market for this and we're not uh, we don't have any entry you can't go buy us on coinbase or, or FTX or any other exchange, right? So, okay, could you maybe elaborate on what you're building something in this space that is not a tokenized, that is not a, a blockchain and how um, that still really aligns with the principles of the blockchain, but um, how, how, you know, utility can be built without these other kind of fundamental building building blocks
0: yeah because we are not trying to build additional complexities for users and for clients because i think those businesses are are trying to do that and they think that bitcoin can't solve for most of the problems that they're thinking of my zion is the mission for zion is to create value exchange between two individuals through Mm -hmm. peer-to-peer money bitcoin Mm -hmm. is is the most secure peer-to-peer money ever created Um, we're trying to establish identities there's open source protocols that other companies are using to establish identity this did spec that we use in zon is being used by block yesterday you saw an investor a meeting that Block had and Jack Dorsey said, we're going to have persistent identity using DIDs. We're using the exact same spec inside Zion because now we're allowed to be interoperable across these networks. I am not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I'm just trying to build the best in class technology without these alternative distractions. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of these other things are inherently distractions and people making up basically illegal securities for the most part. And that's why you see 200 billion dollars worth worth of value Wiped out. I had an email I sent mm-hmm. yesterday about Terra. You have this algorithmic stablecoin that within I think it was 24 hours lost 40 billion dollars. Yeah, in certainly investor a money. watershed
1: moment. You know something. Since we Huge. brought that up, if you could, yeah, if you could maybe dig in, start from the ground up about Terra and Luna because in the history, when you know when the history of of the crypto is written, this is going to be a watershed moment. And yeah. so I think a lot of people have once again heard about it, but don't necessarily understand what transpired. Maybe if you can kind of get Look, into the blood I and guts of
0: that. I, I wish I knew more, but as far as I understand, there's this algorithmic stable coin out there, which means that a stable coin is supposed to be backed one-to-one by dollars, Yep. but it's algorithmic- algorithmically backed, which I don't even know what that means. And I guarantee mm-hmm. you, 99% of the people that own this thing had no idea what it meant either. Sure. It's like, oh, it's like a dollar. And then it gets de-pegged and then it gets destroyed. It didn't just get mm-hmm. de-pegged. It went from 98 yeah. down to zero, like yeah. zero within a few days. And all these people just got completely wiped out. They woke up and all their stable coins were were gone. And this is the the function of DeFi is that there's no one to call. Like I I had this tweet actually the other day it's like, there's no one to save you and there's mm-hmm. no one to call. That was the yeah. realization of all You're this. Not getting DeFi the
1: customer uh, service representative on the phone. There's
0: nobody to call, right? Yeah. And, and I actually, I mean, honestly, I'm trying to figure out where the money go. I don't even understand where it went. Yeah. That's that's why I'm a I'm a founder and a CEO of a company. I've been spending over 20 months building Zion on Lightning. I don't understand how that stuff works. And there's people yeah. just throwing their cash, they're gambling effectively. And this is the this is the inherent difference about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a whole other thing than this entire crypto ecosystem. And I think mm-hmm. the thing that I want people to understand is this 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 narrative. When the iPhone came out, no one understood that this device will disrupt the entire taxi industry. No one mm-hmm. knew that. They had no concept that the iPhone would destroy the taxi industry. That's the same analogy for Bitcoin. Most people don't actually understand the inherent implications of having digital money on the internet and the imp- implications that will have for us in the future. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is inherently different than every other one of these cryptocurrencies. That's why it's in a different category. So I and think
1: that, those are the. Th- yeah. And so the, the one. The one. Well, the two qualities of Bitcoin that seem to be distinguishing factors for me, and why I my faith in them is not in faith in Bitcoin is not shaken. Um, and you know, and why I'm long Bitcoin is one scarcity, and two, just it's fucking unhackable. I mean, it's, it's now, it's got proven durability now. I mean, you know, because we, it's been work. around. Exactly. Well, you got, you're 12 years into it right now with all these sinister, it's very, no shortage of very smart, bad faith actors who would love to go hack that network or would love to find a way to disrupt it. And no one's been able to, right? So those two factors really seem to distinguish it from everything else, in my mind, at least.
0: And, and, and it's the inherent value of proof of work. I think people are forgetting that, oh, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of this. But if I could secure the most, Durable money ever created through proof of work. It is mm-hmm. worth it to me. It's worth it's worth the energy that we're spending to ensure the security of the network. And I think mm-hmm. that's why I'm really excited about it. And and mostly, I'm also excited on how the actual payment rails move. Right, like we're building Zion on Lightning Layer Two Bitcoin. Yeah,
1: I'd love to hear more about Lightning, right? Because this is yeah. you say you got you're not conducting the payments. That's another interesting feature about of Zion. Course. Like you, you guys do do not conduct the payments. You're just creating the connectivity between the the community. Community that allows payments to be made via lightning. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, exactly And so it's nodes on the network communicating and why is this different than PayPal and Venmo and all those other things because those are centralized money Transfer services that are moving Bitcoin between accounts inside of their system where in the lightning network You have two nodes with a lightning channel sending across a protocol Mm-hmm. Zion is not an intermediary of actually moving funds. We're not a money transfer service. We're using this open source payment rails mm-hmm. that allows money to move across the Internet. It's it's highly efficient to move small microtransactions. And mm-hmm. I think this is the cool thing about the new world we're entering is never before could you move subs of a penny to another individual mm-hmm. to buy things or listen to podcasts over space and time. So I can send you under 25 cent transaction inside of the Lightning Network because there's basically one sat transaction fee to send it. And one sat is there's 100 million Satoshis in one single Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to create a completely new dynamic that we've never seen before is the ability to move this small amount of money. The credit cards can't do that because the minimum is 25 cents. Mm -hmm. And why is because they're underlying fraud inside the system. Most credit card transactions you think are instantaneous, but they take three days to finally settle. It's not just the finite amount of how quickly the money moves, it's also instant settlement. And I think the settlement layer we haven't really understood, particularly if you're a retailer or, or you're a creator. Like if you have a Patreon, for example, or you have an OnlyFans and all these others that are supposed to be direct support platforms there's six layers of companies in between you and your fans. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, there's usually a 30-day to 60-day window before you can finally settle at the bank layer. And I think what allows this new payment rails is instant transfer, but also instant settlement.
1: Mm -hmm. And so you made a... An interesting point about the nature of payments on a podcast I listen to, uh, in terms of single direction, uh, single directional payments versus bi-directional payments or Omni- omnidirectional. Yeah, yeah,
0: omnidirectional payments. So I think that the future also allows for this concept of omnidirectional payments, where mm-hmm. right now we're looking at I can send a payment to you as the creator, but can you send a payment back to me? And can your fans pay each other? So mm-hmm. Zion is building inside of the spec and how we release the V1 of the application is that anyone can pay anyone at any time for any piece of content. So every conversation, every comment, every meme, everything that's posted inside the network is an active opportunity for a payment. I think that's a new concept that we haven't seen before is like, imagine Instagram, but instead of sub-liking or replying to a like, you can send Sats to that individual. You've never met this person, you don't have a mm-hmm. relationship with them, but you can send them a lightning transaction, a lightning payment over space and time instantly.
1: Mm-hmm. And are you seeing these? Use, are these use cases playing out in real time on Z? Of course,
0: right yeah. We okay. so we processed over one hundred and twenty thousand lightning transactions between fans inside the v1 of the application so we launched the first version of the app in august we had over three thousand creators join the app they're running their full they were running their full nodes and we just saw this as a thing we said okay wow there's actually user actions where they're sending each other it's it's a small amount of money in this case but because it's a small amount of users but they're doing it right and now what happens if we can make the product better faster more engaging and so in january we took basically took some time to now build the V2, which is coming out in a few months, is a completely new UI, a new UX experience, allowing onboarding to be a lot faster. Because the first version we launched is kind of a science experiment. Like, will people do this stuff that's never been done before? And the answer is actually yes, they love to. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this does y- you, you know, you said earlier that you're not reinventing the wheel and that you're kind of just using, you know, utilizing new technologies that are an improvement on prior technologies um, and for, you know, more user, more user and community utility. And maybe you tell us a little bit about your background with a company called Amplify um, in that to assert, you know, it, it, in essentially building the infrastructure for like-minded parties who wish to transact, to transact more seamlessly is something that you've done before, but you did it in the, you did it, the web 2.0 version, and you seem to be now doing the web 3.0 version. And am I, am I correct in saying that there are
0: enormous parallels between your, your prior tons? uh, Yeah. Tons. It just, it's, so I've always believed that creators are the most powerful mechanisms of change in the world. So my first business started in 2012, was an app on the app store that connected an influencer. So this is like Instagram gets bought by Facebook for a billion dollars. There's no way to do ads. So we built an app that a brand could ping an influencer on their phone to create content on Instagram. So this was okay. like the beginning of influencer marketing. We're one of the first applications on uh, Instagram that actually had an API connection into Instagram. Instagram, So I was getting a ton of data, but there was no ads at the time. So I said, mm-hmm. if you're a creator and you want, to get paid for creating content. You had to go to like CAA, WME, contracts, blah, blah, blah. So what I did was build this app. It pings them, hey, create a uh, photo for this movie coming out next week. Go take a photo in front of the poster and we'll pay you on PayPal instantly. So using PayPal as the payment rails, using, I mean, Lightning didn't exist. Bitcoin you couldn't do Bitcoin transactions in this way. Um, And then send the payment directly once the content is posted, confirm that it's up there and that's it. They're done. They don't have a con, like they use contracting inside the app. So we had tons of creators that love this because one would make $5,000 in a week for a photo on Instagram. Like this, this person would have taken 20% and 10%. So I said, okay, that's a model for advertising. So you're bifurcating this advertising industry. Now, what can I do? And I so so I sold that business in 2016, stayed on the board till 2019. And then I started Zion in 2020. Mm-hmm. It was okay. What can we do to now make the relationship between the creator and the fan closer? Because ultimately, that's the most important relationship. It's not that let's monetize through a third party. Let's make. Let's build the system for peer to peer economics because that's everything that we want to do. Everything we do is peer to peer essentially. So, what can I do to build that? And that's where I I found out about the Lightning Network. So, it's a clear evolution of my my previous business, which is work with creators. And that's why our cap table is so heavy with influencers and creators, right? So mm-hmm. obviously like you know JP, but Tony Robbins, Aubrey Marcus, Mark Moss, Robert Breedlove, Aaron Rodgers, uh Anthony Pompliano, Sean Stevenson, mm-hmm. like uh Griffin Johnson just joined the cap table. Fantastic. Big huge TikTok. Like these are people that were around because I want them to have ownership in this thing. I want it to be the first social product they have true ownership in.
1: Mm-hmm. And and those types of network effects. Well, interesting. So I'd like to get your thoughts on on how you see social media, right? It's people still don't, they understand that some of these companies are very successful that they make a lot of money that there's a lot of users on them, but people still don't, I think, necessarily uh, understand social media as a commercial concept, right? Um, that the this is business, you know that that connecting people, building communities is business. What are you seeing now? I mean, obviously, as you just mentioned, you're trying to uh, you're trying to build the off ramp for these people from Web two to Web three necessarily what do you, how do you see social media you know web 2 version right now how it exists in 2000 in 2022 i mean tiktok obviously is you know the new kid on the block and is sucking up a ton of eyeballs i mean snapchat i think people has been oddly um you know it's been it, the the chatter has been oddly quiet about snapchat giving its success its user base and the trajectory of its market cap over the last few years snapchat and snapchat ended, ended up doing very well um you know how do you how do you see what you know but the the both Positives, negatives, um, and you know, and just your thoughts on the web to social media uh, landscape right now.
0: I I think that they the incumbents have a of a big problem because they haven't created a way where the creators own have ownership inside of their systems, and I don't believe that they've built a way for creators to actually also monetize in a very effective way. YouTube by far has done the best in that, but they still take I think over fifty percent of your revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, That allow you to kind of upload content. So none of these
1: programs, because a lot of these companies did build programs and departments out to create more direct relationships with creators and try to become their partners in essence, or almost their pseudo managers. I mean, I'm sure they've, they've, you know, they have accomplished some of their objectives in doing so, but I imagine you think some of those are also lacking.
0: I mean, it's completely lagging because that's not their business model and no creator will mm-hmm. tell you like, oh my God, Snapchat gives me so much money. Like how mm-hmm. many people, like, is that, does anyone think that's true? I don't think I, anyone thinks that. No, think I, that. I guess like if on the one ask, hand, we'd ask creators. I don't think that's true.
1: Sure. But let's say a Griffin Johnson can look at TikTok and figure, all right. Um, the amount of money I'm making off this is, for better or for worse, uh, unless I had gone and tried to become a child actor and you know gotten a bunch of big roles, this was the most money I was going to make doing what I'm doing. If not for TikTok, I wouldn't be making this money. However, uh, that doesn't necessarily speak to their relationship with the platform itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that they're building a relationship with their audience, but they don't own the actual audience. And I think that's where we're trying to kind of evolve the new systems to is that Zion is not creating another walled garden, right? We're we're creating this interoperable network that will be persistent forever. That's why, like when you create your identity. Inside of Zion, it's interoperable with other Web3 applications. I was right. About it to will ask be, that. Like that, mm-hmm. the key is that I'm not building another walled garden. That's the problem where I look at a lot of these other companies that are starting, is that, oh, come join our platform. Mm-hmm. We are not a platform, we're a utility. And yes, we have an application that people can in, can go on to for the first time, but essentially it's an interoperable identity. This is an identity that can be persistent. Also your content will be persistent. So the way I com- I talk to creators about this is imagine Facebook, but you can leave and take all of your fans with you. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of service that we're providing inside Azon. because eventually this DID decentralized web node lightning layer will be the established pattern that all companies in the future will use because most of these shit coins are gonna disappear. Most of these blockchains are gonna go away. Nobody wants your random token. It's all gonna come back to Bitcoin. Uh, in the end, like Greg, like we're going to see that happen over the next few months. So this is, I believe, the persistent pattern over time.
1: So you really do think? I mean, because I, I talk to people in this space all the time, and I mean, we talk to the Bitcoin Maxies, and and some of them will say that yes, this entire world has sprouted up around Bitcoin, is kind of with Bitcoin as the centerpiece, and there are tons of smart people involved in it um, in, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in capital invested into it. But at the end of the day, it's all bullshit and it's all going to come back to Bitcoin for its inherent properties, a couple of which we discussed earlier. And you, you know, you think that that is, that could, some version of that could definitely be the case. I think
0: some version of that will, will come into case. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. the bet that I'm making. I'm making a bet on this pattern. I'm making Mm -hmm. a bet on this technology And I have to have, you know, look, conviction matters. There's something to be said about focus. And that's, that's my decision. I'm not, not open to listening to these other things and how these other systems will work, but Mm -hmm. that's my general opinion at this date, which is Friday, May 20th, 2022. That's my opinion at this, at this stage, but I could evolve. I don't know. I mean, yeah,
1: um, yeah, and listen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think I qualify as what many people would call a maxi, but um, uh, at viewing this as the cream of the crop, um, I, I think it's certainly proven itself out, and I think that you're seeing the price action across the board right now. As I said earlier, I mean, we're still, you still got a three x on Bitcoin if you bought before, you know, a, as a virus was starting to circulate in China in January and February 2020. And you still got some nice returns here. The durability of the system um, and the economics around it have been pretty shocking. Um, regardless of whether it's you know retraced fifty sixty percent from a high, um, timeline-wise, you guys, you know, you you've onboarded a number of people. You've got creators who are on your big, very prominent creators on your cap table participating in your network. Um, from a lot of perspectives, this seems like the most obvious, like an incredibly obvious improvement on what's currently available in Web two. So. To the extent what is it just a matter of time? Have you found it's, any it's, any it's, friction or is there any impediment for you to continue total, onboarding people?
0: Total friction, right? So I, I think what we realized, and, and this is just the the truth of the matter is when we launched our, the the technical pattern we developed was every user runs on Zion as one node and then one lightning channel to be on mm-hmm. the network, which is why we had a cost to them joining. What we found was within 30 days, we became 13.5% of the global Lightning Network in terms of total nodes on the network, mm-hmm. right? So one in 10, almost like two in 10 nodes effectively were run on Zion's infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We realized that this is not a scalable model for pattern. So we, we went in January and started developing the second version of the application. And that's why mm-hmm. we've kind of paused onboarding actually of, of users until we launch the next version of the application, which will be a few months away. So Mm -hmm. right now we're kind of in this hold and build pattern where we're just building the underlying technology, but we've proven that the model is valuable. So right now it's all about, we want people to hear our story. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I wanted this to be out in the world of like, I think this is how the world should work in the future. And we're so excited to release the second version in the coming months.
1: Fantastic. Um, The principles underlying This network and these activities, the ones you previously laid out six of them, Um, a few of them we've already gone over in terms of, you know, building social and digital monetary layer. Um, But one that you also focus on and that it it just from uh, uh, that that seems to reflect one of your interests is censorship, free speech and Bitcoin and these these various protocols. Uh, related protocols or, or internal protocols, um, you know, making communication censorship resistant and decentralized, and, and bypassing the kind of cultural censors that at this point anyone who denies are exerting, you know, outsized influence on, on you know, our social networks. Um, and it's just ridiculous to deny at this point. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that you know that principle informed um, what you're doing with Zion and, and what you're seeing more, more generally.
0: I when I started this company was basically the middle to end of 2020. And I and I saw the beginning of the emergence of censorship. And I realized like having a voice in a digital world is 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 in a very important part of civil society. And I was telling my friends at the end of 2020, I was like, hey, I think one of the most powerful people in the world is gonna get wipe, wiped off the face of the internet. And then January 6th happened, regardless of your politics, the president of the United States, the standing person that runs this country disappears off the face of the yeah. internet indefinitely, like yeah. indefinitely, not just like, Hey, he'll be back in 30 days. Cause he was a bad boy, whatever you want to say, like indefinitely. Which seems Like
1: it would have been a more sensible punishment. So
0: much sensible. I mean, Jack right? just said that Elon just said that like it would have been sensible to bring the person back because what you've created is the divisive nature. And mm-hmm. then you have Trump going down his own technical rabbit hole to build another bullshit social network that no one's ever going to use. Cause it's been divided. There's no town square to actually have discussions anymore. Yeah. It's created this with terrible riffs. so you need something that allows an open conversation. And it's proven right like like the richest person in the world is saying it. Everyone's like yeah free speech is a thing we need. Mm-hmm. But The technical patterns have to be implemented so there isn't centralized control. That's why Zion is not built in a traditional LAMP stack. We're not just putting names on a database. We're saying, no, no, no. You establish a DID and the private key to access Zion is only held on this device. Like Mm -hmm. we don't even have access to private keys. There's no usernames and passwords in Zion. It's just private keys that allow you to, and then every message you send is signed. Anybody in the world can host a relay And then all the transactions are on a open decentralized network that is Bitcoin and Lightning. We're not developing a lot of our, we are developing some elements of proprietary things to make things faster, but ultimately these are open standards. You can fund your wallet from Cash App, from Strike, from any open Lightning wallet. We're not building another walled garden. So I think you need those technical patterns to build a truly censorship resistant technology. And that's just my approach to all this stuff. Because most of these... By the way, most of these other blockchains are still highly centralized, right? They're turned off every hour. Okay, well, Mm -hmm. this is off because they want throughput. They want speed. And I get it. Reliability and speed matters a lot in technical products. But what, like asking the question, how is this actually censorship resistant is mostly a pledge, Mm -hmm. right? Like Trump is pledging, okay, I'm not going to censor you, but there isn't actually a technical pattern that allows them yes or not to do it. Do you actually own anything? No. Do you have a private key? No. Do you have a DID? No. You're using an email, username, your phone number. Same thing everyone else uses. There isn't persistent identity over space and time. And we'll
1: have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. I do still think, however, that there are, you know, it's going to be a while until we shift to a completely decentralized world. Totally agree. We we do need the pledges, the, the enforcement of cultural guardrails around censorship where, hey... People are these days, you're more scared to oppose censor or at least in recent times. I think we've seen a real shift in the physics of this over the past six months, even or even three months um, where there's there's cultural taboos around censorship as opposed to cultural taboos around expressing yourself and then uh, uh, putting yourself at, at at risk of censorship. Right. And, you know, we really shifted heavily in the latter direction over recent years and culminating with the banning. Right. You know, the pendulum seems to be swinging a little bit. I mean, um. How optimistic are you that during this transition phase to from centralized to decentralized that whether or not let's call it whether Elon uh, executes on his purchase of Twitter that the that now that the cultural pressure seems to be pushing back against censorship and in favor of freedom of speech that that there is some demonstrable shift here that that you know that that this recent phase is going to be kind of a blip on the radar uh, as opposed to the new norm.
0: So the, the the constraints are the business models. So one of the things I outlined in my book is that the fundamental cornerstones of censorship isn't just the employees of these companies. It's also the business models of these companies and everything that monetizes Facebook and Twitter and TikTok is a third party subsidizing the cost of the service to run through attention of individual users. So mm-hmm. I think the business models also have to shift to go into this new model. And that's why one of my tenants of the future of social media is peer governance versus platform governance is that inside of a peer governed world, it's not just that the governance mechanisms are the individuals that use this system. It's also the monetization vehicle. It's those individuals, right? We're not using a third party to subsidize the cost for this service to run. And that was a, that was a weird thing for people to like, oh, wait, Zion's not free, it's not free to join. It's not free to be on. It's like, no, we, we're a business because this can't just live in perpetuity if we don't have some sort of a fundamental business model. We're not a 501c3 foundation. We mm-hmm. want to build a sustainable business model for the future. And that's the interesting thing about building things through money and having all these potential transaction fees inside the network is that will be the eventual end state of monetization is using the lightning network and the payment rails for microtransactions.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of blips on the radar, there was a pro- project called BitClout that seemed to uh, reflect some of what you're you've been discussing in terms of creators, it, everything being built on a monetary layer where every interaction of a creator had some monetary component. The the um, fans were monetarily invested in the creators and vice versa. Um, do you you know that seems to have that that, that project seems to have dissolved, or at least the interest in it dissolved very quickly. Any thoughts on where that went wrong to the extent that they got anything right that that may have some continuity or be relevant to the future of the social, you know, of Social Web 3? Um, because I don't know, that's just that one that that perk, that project perks some people's ears up, a number of individuals got on it for a minute or two, then kind of disappeared into the ether.
0: So I was asked this exact question. Um, Chamath actually asked me this question directly two days ago. He Mm -hmm. said, What about DSO? Right, why didn't you build this on DSO? And I just had a very clear opinion, which was, I don't believe that you need a token to build this type of project. I also didn't understand the reason that you needed a creator token to monetize the system. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't understand why you needed a blockchain to store individual messages of data. I don't, I don't think that because also that doesn't provide persistence. I think that the new pattern is using a DID using a decentralized web node is an open source pattern that anyone can implement in terms of content and content tagging and thinking like, like what people have to think about is DIDs are like DNS, right? DNS is a, is an IP address. It's like a website, WWW. That's the same thing, but for social identity. So the things that we did for websites, now we need for applications, we use DIDs for that. So this was an exact question someone asked me. And the answer was, I don't think you needed a token. That wasn't Mm -hmm. my opinion. I think we could use Bitcoin as the monetization mechanism. So I think that where maybe just a small opinion of where I think it went wrong is I don't think people wanted that token. Mm -hmm. I don't think they wanted to use Another thing. People just want Bitcoin. They want simplicity in their life, not more. Okay. Now I have a wallet with thousands of tokens. How can I manage all that? It's complicated. It's really complicated, right? Like you have all these different things like, oh, I have this token and I have this token. I have this token. I, I, I don't think you need it. And I think the blockchain also made it complex because there's a, there's a cost, there's a throughput for that data storage. There's, there's all these other elements that make it a little bit and, and blockchains I think are highly inefficient generally. They're, they're Mm. not, they're not a good way to store data. They're, they're good for security. They're not great for speed. And Mm. I think social doesn't require security. You don't, you don't need like Bitcoin, you need security because it's money. It's like you can be holding hundreds of thousands of dollars in one single transaction. You can move billions across the world. So speed is not as important as security. So if you remove the blockchain element, you can actually increase throughput of speed, but you don't need a lot of security. It's a photo. It's a video. Who cares? It's a tweet. It doesn't matter. It doesn't like I think we've we've overcomplicated life in a lot of ways. Like everything needs a blockchain. Like, no, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. think those are the things that look, I could be wrong. I, I'm not a highly technical engineer and I don't understand, but that was my honest opinion to actually an investor probably in the company. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, just thought it's some interesting parallels, or let's call it distinctions, uh, in terms of you know, build really building an inherent monetary or financial relationship between creators and their fans. That 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 was what I found interesting. Obviously, it, it seemed you know it did not work. Um, I saw one criticism of it that hey, you guys screwed up by putting the the token price you, you by by sticking the price and the value of the token on everybody's profile, and it just became this little like kind of obnoxious game, you know, a way to try to game your price up. Um, um, so uh, I mean, what, could, what
0: what did you see? You saw really rich people buying their own tokens to make themselves yeah. feel good. That's yeah. what you saw for basically two months, right? Mm-hmm. They all like we we have mutual friends that did that exact thing because it made them feel good on a website that their token is worth twenty three thousand dollars. It
1: was on. a lot of a lot of ego stroking and trying to get attempts to gain the system.
0: Of course. Um, so, and you can't game Bitcoin, right? Like, that's the thing. You can't game this other thing. You can't just mm-hmm. like add more funds and then do like Look, people probably made a lot of money and it was great, but.
1: No, no, uh, no endurance there at all. Um, so you were at the All-In Summit. How was that?
0: It was great. They, those guys are geniuses. They're, They're great. Like, What what they've done, I have so much gratitude to them as individuals. It's an, It was an honor to go. It was an honor to meet the guys. Like, what a cool moment. I thought it was a really cool moment in time because we saw the Elon thing live and mm-hmm. he, listening to him. There was a weird moment at some point where Elon's talking about kind of this super app idea using like, like building a social layer with money. And I had a friend in the front row texting me like, Hey, is Elon talking about Zion? It's like, yeah, kind of. Yeah, that's exactly Mm -hmm. what we're building. Uh, We're building on Bitcoin though.
1: Yeah. Well, it seems like, and I I discussed this a little bit with David when I had him on, is that the type of conversation that those guys are having is the type of conversation that everyone now recognizes we should be having, right? Kind of matches people to their interests, that people are interested in the startup world, the crypto world, where that intersects with international affairs, politics, speech, and how technology affects speech. I mean, it seems like those, all of those topics are intersecting, you know, in the public, in, in public interest. And there are very few people that are having that, those conversations in a constructive manner, because as we've discussed with a lot of political divisiveness, you know, everyone wants to, uh, everyone, everybody there's talking within the same channel over here, the same channel over there. Um, and, uh, you know, and always, always informed by their biases and audience capture and not wanting to piss off the people that uh, all these, all these creators with followings, they know how they got their following and they know how they could lose their following. And they don't want to have a conversation that risks losing any following whatsoever. But these guys, you know, they're all very successful. They they didn't they did not become public figures because uh, a bunch of people followed them on Instagram or Twitter or whatnot. And so they are kind of insulated to have those conversations. And I think what they're doing in trying to kind of uh, really they're trying to amplify a, a healthier cultural and economic and business conversation seems to have all culminated at this conference. I'm really glad that they did it.
0: I'm, I'm, yeah, it was, it was an amazing moment in time. I think it will go down as one of the best kind of high, it was all signal, like, like, that's the way I think their podcast is, it's pure signal, zero noise. Like you listen to that for an hour and you've consumed a much enough things that could, that can take, and for me, like, I it's me, I'm like the perfect demographic, right? Founder, previous exit, thinking about my own wealth investing of my own liquidity and trying to build a business, it's like the perfect storm for everything that I want to do. So I'm like honored. Like it was so cool to hang out with them. No it was doubt. Cool to so, give him my book. It was a cool thing. Like I gave him my book. It was a thing.
1: That's awesome. It's wait. So you were on a panel. What what panel was this?
0: I wasn't on a panel.
1: No, oh, I you just, weren't. Oh, Jamal uh, no, just, just asked. You got it. Got it. Got it. I gave actually, oh,
0: okay. I gave him a copy of my book, and we talked for a few minutes. Very cool. Tell us a little bit about the book. So unapologetic freedom. Here it is. Here's a little little copy of the book. Nice. So this book. um You know, JP did the forward of the book. Uh, Tony Robbins did the endorsement on the cover for me. Aubrey Marcus did the endorsement on the back and Mark Moss did endorsement on the back, all investors in Zion. And the whole idea was to just give a true view of what's happening in the world what is censorship? How did censorship happen? So I talk about the, the decentralized century versus the centralized century, and then a path forward, a very clear, like none of this stuff is really an opinion. It's just a matter of fact, this is how it works. This is how the centralized systems make money. This is a, and then what is a potential solution through proof of work? And I describe. Staking, how do you prevent spam? I just wrote this article about spam. Actually, there's a, it's a chapter of the book is how do you prevent spam on centralized social media? And I, there's a whole part, a section in chapter four that outlines how you defeat spam through proof of work. So all of this stuff, I think it's just like a practical, like really quick two hour read of like, this is what's happening and this is a potential solution.
1: Well, give us the really quick two minute read on how you do, uh, uh, prevent spam because I know it's something that's been kind of primed to the Elon conversation. That's just fascinating to watch him direct <laughs> this con- He's orchestrating this conversation about his purchase of this massive communication platform in real time on the platform itself, which is fascinating, but <laughs> it's so cool. It's, it's so cool. Um, he's and he's such
0: cl- a genius. He's, he's so
1: smart. No, nah, he's really doing incredible things. Right? God, it's like everyone can go find fault, right? I, I understand why the haters are there, but can't you like don't people see this guy as like a truly independent sovereign individual who is is taking on a system that he's found to be oppressive and a lot of other people have found to be oppressive? Like, how could you not root for the guy? It's so so odd to me to to, to see people. I'm such not, a fan. Yeah, I'm,
0: like if I is there, like uh, that guy is a genius. He's fighting the good fight. He's and you fighting can see,
1: the good fight. Also, you see, it's like all of a sudden, oh, Elon starts speaking up a little more. All of a sudden, curiously, Jeff Bezos starts speaking up a little bit more. It's really, you know, once you break the ice there, uh, it, it, it empowers a lot of other individuals. You think, how these richest guy, the second richest man on earth, how is he not, does not feel empowered to speak out about these things? And it really takes a person willing to speak out to even empower people that you think would be, would be, you know, cancel proof otherwise. But yep. um, would love for you to summarize how you see this technology being able to pre- prevent
0: spam. So we we use a staking protocol. Yeah. So we use a staking protocol and we use the concept of proof of work inside of Zion to prevent spam. Because I realize like this company is going to have millions of people using this application, and I don't want to have twenty thousand people in the Philippines reviewing content every day. So yeah, how can I build? And 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 the methodology is through accreditation, and not accreditation like a university, but through a lightning payment. So what happens in a community is that Remember, everything is inside of a community. Zion doesn't have an open network; it's all inside of communities. So, the creators' community that you join, let's say it's the the Mapalinsky community, you can set a certain amount of stake. Which every time anybody inside of your community makes a comment, a certain amount of Bitcoin is put into your wallet for a twenty four hour period of custody. And if you, as the admin, delete that person's comment for potentially spam hate speech whatever you want to call it it's your it's your thing to it's your community not our community they lose that stake so now spam isn't free it's not a free thing that can exist across the world because it costs money to make a contribution Mm. you have to prove that you're an individual that has a wallet that has and we're not talking about made up tokens We're talking about you staking a certain amount of Bitcoin, a finite asset that only has 21 million of and 21 million times 100 million. Those number of Satoshis that will always only be created once have to stake. So now you're establishing proof of work inside of a social network Mm -hmm. to prevent spam. And that's where I think we're going to be able to scale without having all this complex like review and AI, blah, 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 because there's accreditation towards the user. And what happens after 24 hours, if the comment stays, you get the money right back as the person that made the comment. So it's not that you're taking money every time a comment happens. It's a prevention vehicle because now you actually, there's a cost, there's consequences for being a bad actor. And in the end state, I want Zion to be the safest and most civil place on the web. And right now mm-hmm. it's not because you don't have consequences. You could be a terrible person, tell someone's, you know, really, really bad things on social media can be said to another individual and there's no consequences for it. Maybe your account gets deleted, but you run it right back. the The worst people are not, accredited users the worst people aren't people with blue checkbox it's the random people that you don't know that are the worst people on the internet we want to eliminate that
1: Mm -hmm. would you necessarily there would be negative financial consequences simply to bad behavior exactly Okay.
0: But there's positive financial consequences for being a good actor, right? So mm-hmm. if you're creating content that's valuable, people can boost that content inside of the system. The, but
1: the determination of good versus bad is not made by the central authority or the people working at the com- at the platform. The
0: peers, peer yeah. governance yeah. versus platform. Go- you mm-hmm. decide, it's your community. And then if, okay, Matt, if you decide starting to delete other people's com- contents because you don't like it, that's your prerogative. It's your community. If someone comes into your house and you don't like what they're doing in your house, get get them the fuck out of your house, it's your house. It's not my house, it's your house. They are deciding to enter your house. They have made a conscious choice. We're not forcing anyone to join a community, they're making a conscious choice to join that community. So who are we to be the arbiters of truth, right? We have, remember, we have 200 years, and like this goes back to the free speech conversation, I think David talks about this a lot. We have 200 years of Supreme Court law to know what is free speech and what is not. Exactly. Not, and, and my opinion isn't is it doesn't matter. Like facts don't care about your feelings. Right. That's the, the proxy of what we're trying to do. We are just going to follow the law. I'm not saying anyone can do anything. but We're going to follow the law in all aspects.
1: Yeah. No, and the, the law that as David a point that he always comes back to, and it, it, it's about systems that have been tested right and sure. to the extent you keep on you iterate based on the testing and that's what the the legal system has been in terms of interpreting the first amendment and freedom of speech and it, it that's why it's so strange that people want to disregard that as it, it essentially disregard that as a guiding principle to simply put decisions in the hands of people who mid level people don't understand how these social media companies work they're massive bureaucratic organizations and a lot of people sitting around there executives making $220,000 a year who 32 years old, they graduated from, you know, an upper tier college, uh, sometime in the last decade. And these, they're just trying not to get fired. And they're making certain decisions based on who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak based on their own internal professional concerns. It's craziness.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think this, I mean, if we go 10 layers above this, this is the challenges of the fiat system. The challenges of the fiat system has allowed companies to be able to bring in individuals into their, and pay them these exorbitant amounts of money for the services that they provide. And it's the fundamental broken nature of the fiat system. And it allows, and this is like, I I think Saifedean did a podcast with Lex Friedman that really Mm -hmm. dives in deep into this this topic. One of the best four hours I spent two weeks ago, listening to this thing. Is this a recent chat or a recent chat? I think it was last week or the week after. Lex is great but but Sayfidina, I mean one of the incredible most incredible economists in the world wrote the bitcoin standard the fiat standard I I think really understanding the economics around how these systems work and I think some of these centralized companies also have people that are um, not really understanding Austrian economics. And I'm I'm an Austrian. I, I don't I don't believe in the Keynesian methodology. I think some of these people that work at these companies are so focused on Keynesian economic methodology that they don't understand where the money comes from or yeah. why it comes from. They believe in inflation. It's a good thing
1: blah, blah, blah. Or or maybe they just, it feels like they came of age during a time when it was second nature, when it was just accepted as fact, right? Where, okay, um, we had to print a bunch of money to keep the, to counter the the deflationary demand cycle in 2008 during the great, great recession. And okay, that didn't lead to Zimbabwe like inflation, like some people claimed. So it means that Keynesian, Keynesianism works, right? They overlearn the lessons of that. Essentially the, the financial system coming back from, Two thousand eight, and not exploding just all over the place into people carrying you know around wheelbarrows of of money because of inflation because that didn't happen they they disregarded the risks of Keynesianism it feels like I don't know that and at I, least and is I, my and theory I, and
0: I also think a lot of these people are about to get punched in the face and and you know my yeah. you know I grew up in an immigrant ho- household I grew up with not a lot of money so I've always built been built in this kind of way I like I like 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 this kind of mentality, but I also graduated in 2011 in university, so I've also not seen the worst, but I've always been feeling like the worst is yet to come and once it, it happens, then we're like, okay, now we've lived through it. Now we can change our perspective of how things, but things have been way too good for people in, in a lot of ways. So what's the outlook? You listen, everybody's trying to read the tea leaves. I mean, uh, even I mean, Saxy Sach- earlier today. It's like, clear we're about to enter some some gnarly times. And I, I'm actually, I'm excited about it because I thrive in chaos. Like my, mm-hmm. my MO is that if shit is fucked up, I'm gonna figure it out. And I'm like, I think building a company in this stage at this time, I am so excited about because I know the weak are going to get destroyed, and I know that I'm like I'm relentless. I would make it through. Look, I, two years ago, I survived a brain tumor and I survived mm-hmm. brain surgery. Like this shit is nothing. Like we're about yeah. to we're about to go through a time where the the wheat and the chaff are going to get separated, and this is where the real winners will thrive. And these weak founders and weak 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 companies are just going to be destroyed. And I'm I'm excited for it because it will. Resilient, it,
1: no doubt, it's showing who's resilient, who's got durability, and you know, as you said, separating the wheat from the chaff, and uh, just hopefully the the negative externalities of so much capital getting blown up, you know, won't drag the economy down too much. Um, it seems like the stock market te- keeps on taking hit after hit. We're wondering is g- gas going to be seven dollars a fucking gallon in California forever? I'm <laughs> Starting to find I'm okay. I mean, what's going to put what's going to put downward pressure on this? I, I don't know. It's it's hard to even envision it if if what's happening so far does doesn't reduce the price what it is. I,
0: I hope they just continue to take money out of the system. I think they're promising 190 billion. The stock market is crashing, great news. Let's get it all back and just like like let's normalize stuff. Like let's get yeah. back to normal. Like these companies are clearly overvalued. Everyone says they're overvalued. It makes tons of sense. Like I like it doesn't make sense to me that houses in Austin are more expensive than some in Los Angeles, like it, it still doesn't make sense to me that some of these places are worth what they're worth. So we got to like bring things down to some normal values and say, okay, now let's 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 like reset this a little bit because the last three years has been crazy. It but look at crazy. look at like the money printer went so fast that everyone thought they were so rich all of a sudden. Now it's like maybe not, maybe not what I was thinking before. So,
1: what is your purview on? It- the the notion of you know people are trying to test out the thesis that bitcoin is the a, a true inflationary hedge that because of its stayed properties because it is uh be, because of its scarcity um the more dollars they print just auto, it, to a certain extent automatically it, it serves the interest of the price of bitcoin because some of those dollars are going to go into a, a, you know and a a fungible essentially fungible but unchangeable asset like bitcoin um Perhaps it may, has that thesis been blown up and just that this was simply a repricing and the fact that there are more dollars and more current, you know, just general fiat currencies floating around, just we're waiting for the inevitability of some of those floating to Bitcoin and raising the price or
0: something else going on here. I think that it's very clear that there is not a single non-correlated asset at all, because all assets require liquidity and, and particularly a risk asset like Bitcoin. And, and no one should doubt that Bitcoin is not a Bitcoin is a risk asset um, inside of inside of the system. And until the established utilities, that stuff of the stuff that we're talking about become mainstream and understood by thousands of individuals around the world, millions of individuals around the world, the price will continue to be kind of at a at a nominal rate. Do I believe today it is the inherent hedge against inflation. I don't know because I don't know what's going to, but I think over a long time horizon, it absolutely could be, but the market needs liquidity. And when you suck liquidity out of the system, the price will go down. That's just how it works. That's what's happened with everything. Everyone's scared. So they're selling their stuff and putting it in cash. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. That's yep. the, that's the current state of probably what's happening in the world. And people are like, Oh, I don't know if this is worth that much. Let me cash. Let me cash. Let me, cash. I did that. Yeah. So no. I think that's the, that's the thing we have to think about over a long enough time horizon. Yes. Yes. I think it does.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, 2022 is going to be an interesting one, man. People are going to have to kind of find their bearings, get their feet on the ground, and and you know, and breathe, breathe deeply for a minute or two. Just this much amount of uncertainty in the in the market, and a lot of big players kind of retrenching their stre- their kind of loose money strategies over the last couple of years. It's going to be some pain here. I, um,
0: I, I think it's going to be great.
1: Yeah, the, the eternal optimist, Justin Rosevani. Um, so, those who want to participate in Zion, those who want to get involved, how do they do so?
0: So, um, We'd love for you to join our waitlist. list. Um, so Zion is closed until we launch V2. So you go to zion.fyi, you can put in your email address and eventually... Um, we're going to be releasing the V2 very soon. So please join that email list. Fantastic! Um, if you want to get my book, we've we've made it the lowest price possible on Amazon. So they don't kick us off, which is 10 bucks. If you want to actually nice, get nice. the hard copy. If you want the audiobook, I think it's $6 is the mm-hmm. audio book. Literally, it's like, I can't make it lower. They get mad. They're like, we won't put it on our <laughs> store. Uh, so book is Unapologetic Freedom. If you Google Unapologetic Freedom or go to unapologeticfreedombook.com, you get to find everything there. That would be the biggest support you can I'm on all the social media is just my full name and you can find me there sometimes posting and mostly retweeting some smart people like you.
1: No, it's quite the honor, and uh, for the the true optimist, shining some a little bit of a sunlight on the crypto winter that we are experiencing right now, building something fascinating and more so, you know, and and this is what I what really continues to draw me to the crypto world is that there's people who are truly operating from first principles in what they build in terms of freedom, uh, in terms of you know, in, in self ownership and self sovereignty, and you know these are the types of principles that that should be guiding what we build and. in in commerce uh, and communication tools. And Justin's doing just that. So it has been a pleasure to chat with you this morning. Um, Everybody, you know where to find Justin now and uh, look forward to uh, what, what Zion has to hold for everybody.
0: Thanks, buddy. It's great.
1: Awesome, guys. Thanks so much. This is the Prevailing Narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh.